And good morning here on Fuzzy Logic, uh, your science on a Sunday. Here's a little party dinner conversation that you might like to have. What's your favourite body part? No, no, not that one. Uh, <laughs> maybe your brain? Uh, or could it be perhaps your hand? Imagine living without your hand. And what a complicated and marvellous device the hand is. Well, isn't that kind of... Oh, dear, here comes a pun handy because our guest today on Fuzzy Logic is David Hinwood, who is a PhD researcher at the University of Canberra. Good morning, David. Hi, how's it going? And uh, now, also special introduction to our new fuzzy logic talent, a regular Caroline Gals. Good morning, Caroline. Good morning, everyone. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> Ca- Caroline is officially a... She's a sample of the species Homo fuzziensis, <laughs> which is my very nerdy way of saying Caroline is now a fuzzy logic regular. Now the hands... So um, we've introduced or brought David to the studio today to just have a chat. Um, The PhD student, David Hinwood, is not your average PhD student um, in that he primarily works with industry and has a startup or entrepreneurial presence about him. And stick with us and we'll share a little bit more with you. So if you have any questions, just tweet us at Fuzzy Logic, so at Fuzzy Logic SII, or myself at Caroline A. Gows um, on Twitter. And we'll have a, we'll just lead into the questions now. So let's start off, David. I'm sure you're really excited to be with us. And can you just summarize your research on, shall we say, robot hands? <laughs> um, yeah, so um, basically the way we as humans grasp uh, is obviously we do it in a variety of ways and we also use a variety of fingers. We might hang things over our arms. We might just use pincers between our thumbs and our, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, like lateral graphs, for example. So uh, I started my research in uh, not looking at robotics so much, but actually these type of hand configurations, which are hand-centric taxonomies. So basically they look at how humans grasp things and then make comparisons to robotic end effectors. Um, And so as I was going through this, I was looking for ways to manipulate fabric, and there were some really interesting gaps. So currently uh, the way robots grasp deformable objects, um, they do it at a um, at a specific range of orientations and methods, and there's no real way to arbitrarily grasp fabric in the same way that we can. So, for example, if some of you were listening were to close your eyes and just you knew roughly where a bit of fabric was on a table and just tried to pick it up, you could do it quite easily. Robots can't really do the same thing. They require to be able to look at it with computer vision, interpret the fabric's body and um, position, and then... So are you basically saying... You want robots to basically have a sense of proprioception about them to pick up these fabrics? Yeah, exactly. That's fantastic. So, yeah. Oh, can we define proprioception? Um, yeah, defining, uh, sorry, knowing where you are in space. Um, uh, so it's an awareness of your body uh, in, yeah, in space. So my hands are here, yeah. my feet are there, and the things around the room, or it's just really just my body in that space, isn't it? Yeah, like a spatial awareness. I think there's um, a group of researchers that you see, the University of Canberra, who are working on that with different body parts, so um, knees, ankles, um, balance in general. So they're running clinical trials at the moment, which is pretty cool that you're building this into robot hands. Um, yeah, uh, 
part of that was, yeah, meeting a few people from health faculty who were also doing um, similar things. Um, but basically, yeah, so it started off kind of, uh, yeah, grasping with a sense of proprioception. So that kind of then led me to look at these grasps, and there's actually a variety of grasps that we as humans use. So, for example, just grasping between your thumb and your index finger at the finger tips is known as a... Um, uh, I can't remember the name, which is great. Uh, a pincer um, tip grasp, and then you got a pincer clamp grasp. So there's a very specific difference between them. Um, but is that like a, a crab? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> like so, a crab. <laughs> so one's. Uh, this is going well. <laughs> one. So one of them, for example, is just between the fingertips. So your finger pad of your thumb and your finger pad of your index finger coming together is considered different from where your fingertips, so where your fingernails would kind of meet in a grasp. Um, so what you're referring to, David, is all the, the different ways in which we can grasp an object. Yeah. Um, based okay, on between the, the different fingers, yep. Keep yeah. going, yeah. And yeah. based on the parameters of the number of fingers present and the number of contact points on the object held and whether you're moving or not. So kind of basing hand configurations and movements just defined by these various parameters. So it, it's something we do intuitively, like so on the console in front of me are all these buttons and sliders, volume controls and stuff and a pen, so I intuitively know that to pick up this pen, I use a certain motion, so I'll, I'll get my thumb and maybe my first two fingers, and I'll pick it up like that, and that's really easy. But that, you're saying that's difficult for a robot. Yeah. Um, there's So in the, in the steps that your brain took to figure out how to do that simple tasks, we have to program every single one of those for a robot. So, for example, you... You look down at um, you look down at the pen and you saw okay this is an object roughly um, you know roughly eight mil uh, in width and maybe tw uh, twenty centimeters in length and then based on all this knowledge that you built up over your life with vision you were like oh okay that is a pen uh, and I know roughly how big it is and then you were like to grasp it I need to use this amount of fingers. Uh, so okay, so the, the process begins with the vision, right? Yes. So you you know the properties that you, to expect of an object, and you know its alignment in space and how heavy it's. Oh, at the Questacon, they used to have a thing which was it looked like a brick, and, and you go to pick it up. It's actually made of sponge, and and it's really quite disconcerting because you're expecting like a two kilo brick, and you actually get a, a one hundred gram uh, sponge. And so your expectation is... I love that deception stuff. I know there's a couple of um, chefs in the world that make desserts of savoury-looking things. So they'll have like a cheeseburger, but it's actually like a chocolate mousse. So I love that kind of sensory a disconnect. Tricking, if yeah. that's fair. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Like a, like a disconnect. And... and so, so let, let's start with the process. So, I guess there's a there's a logical sequence to the thing in which these things happen, right? So, you spot the pen. The first thing you do is so. How how advanced is that part of the process, and and is that in scope for your research? So, we've made um, rapid advancements with machine learning and AI and neural networks uh, when it comes to things like computer vision. So, we're actually just be able to show a robot. 100,000 images of pens and where they are in space, and the robots can figure that out. Um, so we've made rapid strides, yeah, on the computer vision front. But then um, in terms of then uh, finding the optimal points to grasp, for example, that's kind of a whole different task. So you've done the identification and um, localization in space, and then you need to work out what the optimal grasps are. So there was some uh, really interesting work coming out of Berkeley um, under 
Ken Goldberg, and they've actually produced an AI which works out grass points based on objects. Um, so that's kind of groundbreaking new stuff. Uh, okay. Is there also part of this is you, you have this big catalogue of objects in your memory, in your brain. You know a pen is likely to have these sort of properties. Is, is that part of it? Yeah. Um, you kind of just, just based on the kind of years you've had of learning, you kind of have been able to estimate based on the size how heavy a pen would be. So, for example, you would see a metal pen, for example, and figure out that it's probably going to be slightly heavier than your standard big plastic pen. Um, so a number of factors, yeah, including computer vision and just <laughs> just the lifetime of practice you've had of working out these properties, but we haven't quite gotten there with computer vision, so we haven't quite got weight estimation, for example, just if we use that parallel. Are you working in a more um, in a smaller domain of objects? So there's a small category of things that you're likely to see in the work you're doing. Now, it's not just any random thing that, that a human could uh, identify, right? So specifically fabric for fabric recycling. So um, basically humans uh, are quite good at kind of grasping fabric with a variety of um, fingers or just a couple and then, you know, moving them into random configurations. Uh, but specifically that, that ability, as we mentioned, proprioception of just being able to look away, close our eyes and just be able to um, grasp the fabric. So that's kind of, I want, I want to build that similar principle of um, arbitrary grasping. So basically being able to place a robot hand at, at any orientation, um, just uh, place it on a surface or place it, you know, in configuration or near a bit of clothing to grasp. So once you have uh, this functioning hand and it can pick up materials from any crazy direction, where do you plan to go with that? So fabric uh, recycling. So specifically, um, the, currently, a lot of people don't realise just how bad fast fashion is. Um, it's the second biggest um, polluter behind uh, the oil and gas industry, contributing 1.2 billion tonnes of carbon towards greenhouse gas emissions each year. Said like a millennial. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and also like wastewater properties and basically a lot of bad things. Um, so the idea is uh, a lot of this is rather frustrating because we have chemical engineers across the globe who have actually built processes that can recycle our fabric. But just this this problem of random clothing in heaps chucked arbitrarily in front of workers is quite hard to start sorting because you need to be able to say, oh, this is cotton, this goes in the cotton recycling process. Oh, this is a blend, it goes in the blend recycling process. So the, um, the idea behind it is to uh, build these robot hands that can pick up fabric generally and just say, uh, infer this information, so say, oh, this is this, I'm going to put the, this item here. So that's, I think that's pretty impactful stuff, considering there's a whole bunch of um, waste reduction movements and recycling, well, people are more conscious about the recycling, and then again, um, you know, reducing your waste, but how did you get to that inspiration or that point? How did you, how did you start with that concept? Um, originally it came from uh, me wanting to start a business around robotics and I went to my current supervisor, um, Professor Damon Harath, and was like, I want to build this. And he was like, have you thought about this a bit? And then I went and did some research and thought, oh, this is actually quite difficult. I might start with a more niche area. So then I went into fabric and I came back and he's like, okay, this is quite a good direction. Um, just got to work out exactly what some gaps are. And then once I, he, I came back, he said, okay, well, let's kind of push this direction. So we did. And then uh, I moved forward and found how robots grass fabric isn't particularly optimal. 
and we kind of worked our way from that small area and we hope to expand into kind of a variety of fabric based manipulation. you know it takes a lot of guts to say hey i have this expertise in this I guess robot mechanics, if you will, if I'm anywhere close to that concept, and then say, hey, I'm going to use that to reduce waste or help recycling or fix this problem that shouldn't be there. We should be able to sort our fabrics and we should be able to um, dispose of them properly, don't you think? I think that's... I'm just going to acknowledge you for that. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> did, did, did you feel nervous, like as Caroline said... So many of the great things that happen in history and uh, are just someone going, you know what, this is going to be really difficult, but I'm going to give it a go anyway. Did you get a sense of that when you started? Um, <laughs> research is very good at kind of scoping down and minimising your expectations, getting you to work on very specifically getting end results. Um, I have caught myself rushing ahead of myself being like, oh, I could do this, 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 and then realised, oh, that's actually quite a bit to do. Um, Absolutely. The structure, the methodology, yeah. the peer review. It's it's quite hard when you're working um, part-time in industry or with startup kind of things and then jumping into research and doing that on a daily basis. So are you willing to talk about your startup experience or industry uh, experience? Yeah. Um, I, uh, the startup stuff, uh, things have been going on a year now. But um, so... Uh, Hayley Teasdale from UC, she just graduated. She um, thought of a novel kind of device to help people rapidly improve their balance. So if you're suffering from Parkinson's or you're suffering... Uh, or even just um, as you get older, you tend to lose your balance. So uh, we met at a pitching event. Wow, it would have been two years ago now, time flies. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, and, yeah, we just kind of met and had a chat and we both just had slightly messed up our speeches and so <laughs> we got along a bit a point of bonding yeah. <laughs> so that's really good because that gets uh, a sense of the collaboration and the teamwork that you need to do something so that so much of the media is like an only one man sorry caroline uh, can do it or is the lone heroic individual but what you're alluding to is so much comes when when good people work together is that is that a sense of how you you felt? I mean, is it, you, you feel supported and you share ideas around and so on? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I found yeah, I found that reality of like a single person being like, oh yeah, I did this all. I take that with a grain of salt. The people I've been lucky lucky enough to work with, and uh, you know, uh, Roland, uh, Goeki, Damith Harath, Haley, um, Alistair, all these really wonderful people have pushed me and supported me in what I'm doing, and without them. You know, I wouldn't be. Absolutely, it's yeah. it's impossible to be an expert in every field. So, really, um, research now is collaboration. It's interdisciplinary collaboration. So, you'll find that most health researchers are working with IT, who are working with law. You, you would it would be very hard to find researchers that are working just by themselves. Yeah. And so often, they'll be quite lonely. <laughs> yeah, so often another person will come up with an idea or an insight that you maybe quite didn't quite see yourself and so on. How did you, what was the starting point? How did you approach this? So you had this notion that you're going to use the robotic hands in this way. What was the first challenge, the first thing you had to think about? The robot hand was um, was actually quite a recent kind of point that I found. Um, for those of, for those of you who are in or doing your PhD, the the starting point is always very difficult because you're narrowing down a scope. 
I'd actually say the starting point came from... Originally, I just wanted to waste in general. I didn't have a clear kind of significant avenue I wanted to pursue. But um, so UC's new professor, um, Dr. Harath, he actually kind of said... Uh, he kind of started working with me on human-based robotics, which I, as a classic engineer at the time, was like, humans, what what are they good for? <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, right? <laughs> and, yeah, as I, um, as I started working with him, I kind of, you know, uh, opened myself up to some new perspectives and actually found, ah, uh, taking inspiration from the way people do things and looking at human behaviour actually can... Um, lead to significant inspiration. Well, uh, that's also the role of the supervisor, isn't it? The supervisor is the mentor, the person who coaches you and, and directs your energy. You, as, as a young researcher, have enormous energy that maybe an older researcher doesn't always have, and and they they help you to shape that into something productive, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like I said, both my supervisors have been really incredible. Um, oh, actually, sorry, yeah, both my supervisors and my advisor have all been really incredible. Um, so moving kind of, yeah, just changing perspective as you kind of went from undergrad to honours to PhD was um, a very... Uh, if I look back over the past five years, it's, it's interesting the change of perspective I have. <laughs> now, our guest today is David Hinwood, who's a PhD researcher looking at robotics and hands and recycling and sorting processing materials. Kind of cool stuff with Caroline and myself. Now, just before the uh, the song break, uh, David, we were talking about how the hand works, right? The, the robotic hand, and you, you, we came up with the term uh, proprioception, which is an awareness of space, and then there's the awareness of the object that you're going to be manipulating, or the robot will be manipulating. I was thinking, when you're looking at a bit of a clothing or something and you go well is that polyester or is that cotton or something like being a, a bit of a gumby man i can't tell the difference so i have to pick up and read the label how, how would a an automated device or robot hand or something tackle a question must be must be quite tricky isn't it yeah robot <laughs> robot hands uh, or the way that I plan on doing it, at least in the short term, uh, with my research, um, is using spectroscopy. So uh, basically, you can embed uh, forensic scientists. Sorry, forensic scientists um, use near uh, infrared or um, Fourier transform um, based spectroscopy to um, identify garments at crime scenes and stuff. So I was going to take um, similar um, similar. Uh, principles and basically embed a near-infrared sensor into the robot hand. So as it's Can we just go back a second? Sorry. For those who don't know what this is, what is this? <laughs> Can you explain the concept to us? Um, the near-infrared or the robot hand? Sorry. The spectroscopy. Oh, um, basically it's a process where you shoot light at an object and measure the reflective values. Wonderful. Right? Is it light outside the visible spectrum? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, okay, so it's uh, ultraviolet or... Uh, infrared. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, okay, just to catch up um, the the listeners. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yes, my reference. Anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so basically embedding that sensor and then you can uh, basically send that light towards whatever the held fabric is and then return it and you get a fairly accurate estimate of um, um, a fairly accurate estimate of what the garment it is you're holding and then you can sort it for chemical recycling processes. 
Okay, so I remember years ago interviewing uh, somebody from a research lab, the hyperspectral imaging they were called, they were special cameras. Are, are these things you say they're going to be embedded in the hand themselves? In, what, in the tips or where, where would you position them on the robot hand? Ideally where the contact points are, so where the fingers of the robot hand meet, because um, that's kind of a guaranteed spot of where the fabric will be. As long as they're held within that position, then sending that signal and receiving. They must be quite small to fit in that little space, are they? There's engineering solutions which can uh, get them to kind of be placed where they needed to be at, at a range of sizes. So, okay. Um, yeah. So, so there's a certain spectral signature of the material that you're looking for, right? And so, I'm guessing the the wires going up the arm of this thing, and then there's a processing unit somewhere. Yeah, uh, in terms of the uh, near-infrared sensor, yes, there's a you run a fibre-optic cable up through the robot hand and then just that signal gets sent back through to the processing units uh, at the base or not embedded in the robot hand. Okay, yeah. okay. So, so we're just sort of tracking in time where we are going through this, through the sequence of things as you, as you handle a piece of material, right? So we've seen it on a maybe it's on a conveyor belt or a table or something right we know where it's located we your your sensor used its proprioception and it puts it positions itself in an appropriate spot and it goes ah that's polyester cotton mix maybe it actually does the grasp first. So the, oh, okay. Um, uh, yep. I so grasps it. it. It goes on the table. It performs the grasping motion, and then it, you know, lifts it, uh, ensures that it's holding it, reads the information, and then sorts it into the appropriate category for recycling. Okay. And what does it do with it then? Well, just put it on. <laughs> uh, so once it's kind of got it and it's read it, it um, then puts it in the uh, appropriate bin or sorting sorted category uh, for recycling because um, mass the processes that we have, mass recycling is actually perfectly possible as long as the materials are guaranteed to be the same um, but at this stage we just don't have that guarantee so a couple of clothing recycling companies actually just uh, specifically take uniforms from um, schools or the police force anything where a uniform... So the, the stuff that's pre-sorted to some yeah. extent, oh, okay okay yeah. So what's the scale of the problem here? Because we've all been to the shopping centres, we've seen those Kamari bins and so on, stuff piled up and there's huge mountains of it. Is this a really large issue? I can't remember the exact numbers globally, but uh, there was a really good piece probably a couple of years back now, The War on Waste with Craig uh, yep. Rucastle on ABC, and uh, just in Australia alone, uh, it was six tonnes of clothing every ten minutes was thrown out. And that's Globally, I know we throw out about 85% of what we buy. Um, and just, um, just the, I know also just off the top of my memory that the world consumed, I think it was close to 100 billion new garments of clothing in the most recent year. And the majority, yeah, 85% of that was just thrown out. I might just add that when I moved to Australia, I was just amazed that they had recycling facilities for clothes. I mean, when I was where I'm from, I'm from South Africa, and when you have clothing that you no longer want, you either give it to someone that you know down the street or to a charity organisation, or it goes straight into to landfill. And at that time, when I was living there, they didn't even have recycling bins. I think they've introduced that into the wealthier suburbs there, but 
I mean, the fact that Australia has charity bins or something to do with clothes that you no longer want, that's, that's pretty impactful. And I think your technologies could definitely roll off, um, roll out to the rest of the world. Yeah, hopefully. That's, um, <laughs> I hope it can. Um, yeah, the interesting thing about charity bins is, um, though, is a lot of that gets exported overseas, and it's not even like in, uh, it's not even in a way where it's just like, oh, you know, like we don't want this here. It's just it's profitable to actually send your clothing overseas because otherwise it gets sent to landfill. And they have to pay money for that. So, so, so what do they do with that? Um, that those garments when they've been sent overseas? Uh, they resell them, and that kind of leads into this whole other. Um, uh, vicious cycle where you've got these cheap clothing this cheap clothing that's been sent overseas like bags of it for a dollar a massive bag I think like would be maybe 20 kilos or something a dollar for 20 kilos of maybe a bit less than that um, but basically yeah, that gets shipped overseas and then uh, you, have you guys ever been just um, floating around uh, I think Southeast Asia is one particular location but you'll basically have these kind of stalls of clothing that sell t-shirts laid out like 20 cents a t-shirt or something oh my goodness wow yeah uh if you ever go traveling and you kind of see that cheap clothing uh, laid out on a map and someone's selling it generally it's been exported from a first world country and that then impacts the weavers of those local countries as well so kind of a, a key goal is to keep uh any waste generated by each country uh localized um so when you've done a little bit of a Maria Kondo, tidied up your house, it feels spark joy and everything, and you take your clothes that, you know, no longer spark joy, to the the clothing bins, are those sorted? And then the clothes that um, that company no longer wants, say it's um, Vinnie's, for example, and there's clothes that are slightly spoiled or torn, are those materials shipped over or are all of those charity bin clothes shipped over? Overseas, I mean. <laughs> From memory, there are three categories. So there's a very small percentage, I think it's five to ten, that are um, considered resellable by the charity. So those clothing, that clothing gets sent to um, uh, basically their, their resale stores and uh, where they can make a profit from them. Then there's the much larger category where... It's acceptable, like it's wearable, but we just don't think anyone will buy them in our stores. And that's the majority of clothing that gets thrown out. So that gets put into large bags and sold overseas. And then there's finally, actually there is a third and fourth category, sorry. Then there's rags. So clothing that is um, spoiled, but has a industrial use or can be um, sent for kind of some form of industrial repurpose, um, repurpose to some industrial application. And then finally, any clothing that's just well, garbage <laughs> is um, is then sent uh, to landfill. There's stuff that can't be used. I, I heard that some of it gets made into rags and yeah. stuff like that, recite the actual text. Because there's, there's value in the, the fibres, surely, yeah. uh, depending on what it is, I guess. Uh, uh, so if it's wool, uh, I guess that's the most valuable one, perhaps, or silk or something, natural fibres. Yeah. It depends on the quality of clothing, the type of clothing, um, and whether it's profitable to recycle. So if we had, say, um, a kind of destroyed cotton T-shirt, um, I, I, I do apologise, I can't remember which particular materials are best, but some materials are better, for example, uh, in industrial rags. So a lower quality cotton T-shirt could probably be used for a rag. Whereas something like, um, you know, something that's just polyester, um, that might not be as applicable. So something of the same quality polyester might just be sent 
to landfill um, instead. Yeah, or maybe, maybe there's some hydrocarbons in there. It could be used in made into uh, the, the plastics the, for, for something like that. But, of course, this whole issue of waste is such a big thing, isn't it? Uh, we, we operate what I call the dud economy, which is basically dig it up, we use it, and then we dig a hole and we bury it. And uh, we uh, th- th- there's the Rocky Mountains Institute in the United States, and I heard one of their speakers saying that we want to, uh, what's the term, cradle to grave. We want to stop thinking about cradle to grave, but think about cradle to cradle. Two double X. Hello, we are back with Fuzzy Logic. So that was just the uh, song by John Butler Trio, and we are sitting with David Hinwood, who is a PhD student at the University of Canberra from the Faculty of Science and Technology, and we're talking robot hands. We are, robot hands. Now, microplastics. Yeah, so we were talking about um, in the last little segment that um, we were just talking about different forms of waste and how you can sort different materials and how they turn into different categories. Some useful, some not, and some just a lot of waste. So that kind of brought me to the idea of um, something that I've discovered in the last couple of years, which is microplastics, and that's um, I believe when you wash clothes um, and they're synthetic materials, I believe, this is my best guess, um, that those plastics go into our water system. Do you have anything to say on that one? Yeah, I did. Um, that did become one of my motivational talking points when I was discussing my research. I think um, it's quite a few microplastics. I think it was 1,900 pieces from memory. Um, but uh, there is a way in which you can kind of help today if you're doing laundry, but you can actually buy something called a corable. And it's basically this little ball that you put in your laundry machine and it sucks or it prevents a lot of microfibers from going to, um, uh, well, from going into the ocean when we do laundry. Uh, but yeah, that, that is, uh, you know, I think I've actually seen that as an ad on my Instagram. It obviously the pages I like from all the environmentally friendly things that I'm interested in. But I think, like, I think I'd be, I think I'd be cool with buying that and just popping that in my washing load. Um, I've seen that um, there's that big, I can't remember the name of it, the big um, capturing trash initiative in the ocean. Oh, oh yeah, there's a big scoop that's going through the ocean. Yeah, yeah and it so was enough. I think it broke last I heard. It, it, it didn't. It broke up in the rough seas, and then they took it back to the port. And I don't know what it's up to at the moment, but plastics in the ocean. Yeah, and a lot comes out of clothing, doesn't it? Absolutely. And even recently, I learned uh, tea bags. Ooh. So some sorts of tea bags are made with plastic. You think they're actually paper, but they're they're not. <laughs> and I believe a lot of tea bags are actually bleached as well, so that would have an environmental effect as well. So <laughs> we definitely got to consider what's an LT. Uh, I, I find it infuriating because uh, I, when I, I drink uh, quite a lot of tea, and it's really hard to buy loose leaf tea. You think about the amount of packaging that goes uh, in a tea bag: is the tag, the string, the little staple, uh, the and- glue that goes with that. And bleaching, and so I'd rather just buy the tea, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realise that at all about tea. That's yeah. new information. I also love it too much to give it up as well. So uh, There's nothing like a nice cup of tea around 3pm. No. It just hits the spot. 
Right, back to robot hands, Rod. <laughs> yeah, ro- robot hands. Of course, now it, it strikes me, David, that you're doing something really useful here because, as we were saying earlier, and you were describing the war on waste, the volume of waste is just enormous. And you see piles of glass and plastic bottles, there's bits of metal, there's you name it, all kinds of stuff. And sorting this must be really, really difficult. So can you see the techniques that you're developing being used more generally for that kind of stuff? The, uh, yes, they generally are being applied right now, um, actually. But I think the problem is you have to kind of go into a niche area. So there was, I actually haven't looked them up in a while, but there was a company called Zen Robotics in Europe. I think it was Europe. And they um, they were doing specifically building construction supply waste. Um, I and then there's uh, a few other ones. Um, for example, there's a company, I think, in the Netherlands that does clothing waste that's similar to what I'm pursuing, except they use cannons to shoot them off a conveyor belt. Cannons? Air cannons, yeah. Oh, air, um, air cannons. Yeah, sorry. I, I, didn't, I didn't say air. <laughs> no gun. Uh, no Can you gun. talk us through that a little bit? That sounds so much fun. <laughs> so, I, I've seen some very brief videos, but as they... Um, so I think they've just produced a much more refined version but at the time when i saw it they had a worker placing single items of clothing on a conveyor belt and then uh it was each item was actually read again under an nir sensor and then the red bit of clothing waited till it got to a certain cannon and then was shot off the conveyor belt into a particular uh tub of clothing so whatever the composition was it would shoot the clothing off the conveyor belt Okay, so that's, that kind of solves the uh, the problem of the grasping, doesn't it? But So why would you go one way or the other? Why would you have a hand versus the, <laughs> I, I want to say cannon, yeah. air cannon, but just blow the stuff off the conveyor belt? There's a couple of improvements that I believe the hand offers. Uh, first of all, you s- in the conveyor belt system, uh, you still do require some kind of human input. Um, you don't kind of have that ability to just place a pile of clothing in front of something and go sort, uh, which is what I'm trying to do. Uh, The other thing is, as well, um, a robot hand has more applications. It's a bit more generalised. So uh, not only... So, for example, this research could be applied to um, not only, uh, you know, sorting clothing by their chemical properties, but also do it in a large voluminous pile without human interference, it can also... There's actually several further applications that aren't specific to clothing recycling, which I'd like to see it implemented in. The re- recycling, sorting recycling strikes me as quite as a quite a difficult problem because you've got such an unpredictable set of inputs. So you mentioned uh, construction waste. So there could be just cement, lumps of cement. There could be bits of brick, which are similar but not exactly the same. You've got bits of reinforcing... You've got glass, you've got timber, and then you've got all the crap that the people had in the building when they put, when they evacu- left it. So maybe there's carpet in there, uh, bits of plastic and so on. That, that sounds like the mother of all, because then that's a difficult environment to work in as well, a construction site. So you'd need to transport the stuff and sorting it. Oh, I'm talking myself into it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um, the construction equipment or construction consumables or supplies, would ri- you could be at risk of damaging the equipment that you're using to sort it. 
Yes, because it's heavy. It's Absolutely. heavy and sharp edges and stuff. You don't know if it's going to cut the equipment, cut cords, all sorts of things. So I think knowing that David's working with relatively soft materials and you can work the design around it and you can extend that to plastics to... I don't know what's going on in your brain, David, but it, there's a lot of application for this and it could work into agriculture. It could... Everything. Oh, oh you, you remind me, uh, Caroline, that uh, research we've had on... The, actually, she's not a researcher. She's uh, an entrepreneur, uh, Olympia Yaga, and she's actually in my book. And, 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 and now, Olympia is amazing because she set up a pilot plant out in Fishwick and it's reprocessing waste food. Oh, you're nodding, David. So you, you've, heard of, you've heard of this? She gave a talk at UC uh, six months, a year ago. Yeah, and yeah. do you remember what she said? <laughs> she talked about the maggots? Yes. I, I'm just trying to remember her speech. Well, she, uh, her company, Gotera, they call them, which is maggot and terek as in Canberra. She, she's joined the two words. And they go around uh, restaurants and stuff like that, and they pick up all the food waste. And then they feed it to the maggots. Now, they're not the regular blowfly maggots, yik. They're the black soldier fly, the main ones that she uses. And they don't have, when they, after they pupate, they become an adult fly, uh, they don't have a mouth. So they basically live for five days after they crawl out of the bins, and uh, then they mate, lay their eggs, and die. So they're not pests like the, the normal blowfly. I'm, I'm getting to the point about the robot hand, by the way. <laughs> We're talking about flies right now. <laughs> well, it, it, it's in under the category of, of waste, right? So when she goes to, or her company goes to a, a, a restaurant and picks up all their waste food, there's all sorts of stuff in there. There could be plastic wrappers. Uh-huh. There could be hamburger buns, there could be bits of meat, there could be bits of bone. And to feed her crop, if you like, of maggots, uh, the larva, let's use the more friendly term, uh, she doesn't want all the bad stuff. She wants the good stuff coming in. So uh, off the cuff, how difficult a problem would that be, do you think? Very difficult. Uh, so there's kind of quite a few tasks that uh, or different ones that would be involved in that so i mean uh, just to give a comparison so with my research it's obviously it seems like quite a simple task like pick up fabric identify what it is sorted but when you have further steps so for example unwrapping something let's say from a half-eaten hamburger you've got the packing around it so you have to kind of work out how the packaging's folded around the hamburger and then pull the appropriate places with the appropriate force to kind of disassemble and extract the wrapper from the burger. And then you might have different scenarios. So, for example, a you know those containers with you and know those little polystyrene or the, maybe the cardboard containers. Yeah. yeah. So you'd have to have you know different hand configurations that could pick that up and do the wrapper, unless you want to do different kind of devices for different purposes. So there's kind of I'd say there's ten to twenty plus tasks involved in that kind of endeavour. Wow. Uh, and, of course, identifying the item as well. Uh, so some of those challenges, how many of those do you have to face with just doing fabrics, textiles? So currently that's uh, where my supervisors have helped in scoping. Uh, so currently it's just scope to grasping. Um, so 
literally just that act of being able to grasp fabric regardless of what position or orientation you put the gripper at on the table. Uh, but the next steps are I've been talking to a few collaborators um, from uh, Australia internationally and the next kind of horrible step we have to do is remove things like the zippers or buttons from the clothing and that obviously isn't just simplified to just grasping. You need more specific or more advanced devices. something to cut. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you need to integrate that somehow into a robot holding the fabric. So that task becomes really, really difficult. Um, so... Ah, so can you even, if you can't deal with that scenario, so something comes down with a zip and buttons and you want to exclude it because maybe you physically can't handle it, do you have the capability to go, ah, oh, like this is a difficult one, I'll put that in the too hard basket? Currently that's outside of my um, scope of research. It is a path that I want to go down later because, uh, for example, you might have a torn pair of jeans, so... If and you know jeans tend to have buttons or weird kind of those metal plug things yeah. <laughs> floating around studs, on them yeah. studs that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so it might have kind of a ripped pair of jeans, and then we as humans would might miss something like that because we would kind of if we said I'll oh, remove the zippers or any plastic items, we'd kind of be like I'm demonstrating on radio. We would kind of fold it around, we'd flip it, we'd kind of look under the edges for certain metal or plastic parts. Um, but getting a robot to do that is obviously quite. Wow, I'm just now I'm kind of getting a sense of just how difficult this is, because so if you were say to sort reusable clothing and Caroline, you were talking about where the the, the different categories of stuff. So this is a pristine uh, item, like a neat pair of jeans that's resellable. This one's got a rip, the fabric's all faded and scuffed. I don't know. That's quite in fashion right now. <laughs> you pay extra money for that. I would. <laughs> Kanye West clothing. Yeah. yeah. But, but that, that, that simple little problem it really illustrates for me just why humans are really, really good at some things and machines are really crap. Yeah, that's, that's it. So I think just focusing on the grasping, identifying part first is key. That actually brings up another avenue as well is where you were saying, um, you know, the West St. Binnies are like, or whatever charity is just like, oh, you know, good quality shirt, resell, bad quality. That then comes into computer vision because you need to tell a robot what's an acceptable item of clothing to resell, what's an acceptable amount of clothing for landfill, or what's, you know, good enough to ship overseas. And that's a computer vision problem. That's not a grasping problem either. So, uh, yeah, I, I sometimes imagine what it would take for a robot to pick up the lawn now off the newspaper, the lawn. Uh, uh, the mail of the uh, lawn. The mail. <laughs> I'm, I'm waddling my birds. <laughs> you get up in the morning and you want your cup of coffee and you go, robot, go fetch the paper. <laughs> that's probably, would you would you say that's actually quite a difficult thing because you've got the, the, the vicious dog, you've got the hose, it's going to trip over, you've got the retaining wall. <laughs> Well, I saw um, a couple of years ago that they had, you know, the room bots, the vacuum cleaners that self-guide through their house. The house. They have that for lawns, self-mowing. Oh, self-mowing. Absolutely. I want one. <laughs> I don't want to mow the lawn. <laughs> yes, that would be very helpful. Um, but, yeah, in terms of just simple tasks, uh, so actually I have a colleague who... Uh, drives me insane on purpose by um, demanding that I make get our, our big robot arm in the lab to make him coffee. 
and that's his <laughs> that's his favorite joke every morning doesn't get any laughs at any, any, every time particularly um, before coffee hey? yeah <laughs> no he tries it every day or to butter a piece of toast yeah it's non non trivial so we, we're running to the end of our time here mm-hmm. on fuzzy logic david but uh just maybe riff on the where you see robotics generally because i think we're sort of touching on the bigger theme how f- long would it be it's like if i look at my hand now it's just an amazing construction uh, and uh, last week we were interviewing some dancers and we talked about biomechanics and i think of this as being a, a system of rope levers and pulleys uh how far are we getting something of a wonderful subtlety of something like a hand a human hand i would make comparisons to the early days of computers uh probably at the stage where uh where computers were publicly available but really only hardcore coders and um, people were buying them and kind of going through them um and that would have I feel like that was the 70s. I could have my time wrong there. Um, but anything before 2000s old. <laughs> well, I'm trying, to th- I'm trying to think of anything before the 80s when Mac started doing its thing, like, yeah, early um, Apple days and stuff. But it, it is going to get better, but we've, we're just at that precipice where a million different things are being developed. So there's grasping technologies, there's robots which have compliant joints, there's, you know, soft robotics is what I mean by that. And um, then there's, you know, crazy computer vision stuff. So we've got companies now bringing out algorithms that can where you can quickly train to identify things so it's getting to that stage where all these technology is building up and it's at that precipice and however long it takes to get past that thing where you've suddenly got commercially available yeah uh, i, I can tasks. see there's a blend of so many different things coming together there's the mechanics there's the electronics you talked about the spectral cameras uh the not the artificial intelligence processing and so on and so on uh Actually, I, I, I was reading the other day about uh, driverless cars and the challenges of, of operating those. They are really, really difficult. Maybe that's the topic we'll cover on another day. Absolutely. I have one last question for you, David. So I just wanted to see um, just your opinions. It doesn't have to be by the book or anything, um, and we won't hound you afterwards about it. But did you have any advice for researchers that are looking to work with industry? Because we know that industry would like results immediately and in very short term. Do you have any advice for researchers at the moment? My opinion is limited to robotics, but... I would say that... It's quite a difficult question, hey? <laughs> I'm just trying to think. Uh, the best... Just having something demonstrable ready, so that's kind of where I'm at now. So we just we just finished building the first version of the hand, and I have had several comments from <laughs> colleagues about improvements that could be made. But um, the... It's a refinement It's process. a refinement Re- process. Research is refinement. Yeah. But um, for a first version, we're pretty happy. But... Um, just having something ready or something demonstrable, something tangible, uh, it will grant you a lot more Absolutely. success. Absolutely. And it's a bit sparkly. Yeah. Sparks joy, if you will. <laughs> so we'll um, yeah. lead you off. This is our last couple of minutes with David, and we'd just like to say if you're keen to support David and his robot hands, he'll be um, on stage and pitching at the University of Canberra Pitch for Funds. Um, so that will be Thursday, the 24th of October, after work hours. So please come support him and his robot hand. 
that's all for us. Thursday the 24th of October? Absolutely. Oh, well, maybe we'll come out. I'd love to see this uh, robotic hand, uh, David. It sounds like heaps of fun. We just ran out of time, and uh, thank you, David. It's been a great, <laughs> lots of fun talking to you. It's full of interesting and, and a worthwhile thing. And Caroline, uh, great to have you on air. We'll, thank you. I look forward to it. Our next guest will be... Ooh, can't remember off the top of my head. All right. <laughs> it's a bit, well, a bit of time. Caroline, you're already getting exciting guests for us here on Fuzzy Logic. Today's Ask Fuzzy is about why Beethoven went deaf. Oh. Uh, really interesting. And that's an extract from my book about sound and hearing. Uh, and that's a quick plug. So check that out in the Canberra Times. And, well, that's it. Time to go. Catch you later. 